Welcome to the first episode of the Loop Ventures Liquidity Podcast. This is Doug Linton. I'm one of the partners at Loop, and I'm joined by Gene Munster, another partner at Loop. Hello, Gene. Hello, Doug. So before we start, I will give a quick reminder to everyone that this is not investment advice. We're just talking about trends that we're seeing as investors across various stages, public and private. And since this is the first episode, I wanted to start by explaining why we're doing this podcast, because uh, Gene and I want to talk about where we see the puck going in the private markets. And so in particular, we're seeing this massive trend of active capital allocation moving from public to private markets. More institutional investors are using passive vehicles in the public markets and looking for active alpha in private equity. And we think this trend is just beginning. More money will keep flowing into private equity with tech IPOs so far this year. We've already had a record net distribution to venture LPs of more than $35 billion. It's the highest quarter we've ever seen, actually, according to the NVCA data. And those LPs are going to look to put that money back to work in venture across all stages. And so we think this means a few things related to venture, and we're going to touch on them a bit throughout this discussion and throughout these podcasts as we keep doing them. And the first is that the idea that the unicorn is dead really doesn't make sense. If we have more money coming into the market, it means there'll be more support for big valuations and bigger rounds and even continued lengthening of that holding period or exit to IPO. The second thing is that as valuations get bigger, the only natural path for a lot of these companies is going to be the public markets is to go IPO or do a direct listing, which we're hearing a lot more about. And the third thing is that with the public markets as the ultimate destination, if that thesis is true, we think we're going to see a lot more intermediary price discovery on these companies so that they don't get too disconnected from the public markets like we saw with WeWork, which we're going to talk about in a minute. We're going to be publishing more about this thesis on our website and kind of how we see this world shaping up, where we continue to see the puck going. But that's the fast version for the podcast. Anything you'd add to that, Gene, before we jump in? I think you covered it. All right. So let's start by talking about our favorite topic, which is WeWork. And obviously that story is still playing out. Obviously, an IPO isn't going to happen there for a long time, maybe even ever at this point. But the most recent reports this week were that the company could run out of cash by mid-November. And there's some talks about the sort of emergency financing from maybe SoftBank or JP Morgan. So what do you think happens with WeWork, Gene? What's the end of this story? I think that they will successfully raise money. I think one of the reasons is that they're disrupting a market that should be disrupted, and that is the office leasing space, basically taking these, what historically were longer-term leases and being able to fractionalize it, allows people to scale up and down more quickly. I think that that opportunity is vast. And when we think about companies that are changing the conversation around, in this case, where people work, these open-ended growth opportunities. I think that the concern about near-term cash and them running out of cash is overstated. There's some similarities to Tesla and this fear that Tesla investors have that the company is going to run out of cash. That's less now. They now have $5 billion in cash. But that story kind of plagued the stock for many years. 
And the reality is, is that they'll find somebody to finance them. And I think we work as the same case. This is not a situation where the company is going to dramatically downsize because of where their cash is at today. They will find a way to get funded. But the path to IPO is probably a year plus away because they need to get that money in and kind of lay that new groundwork, which will be probably a slightly leaner company, but ultimately be one that is around for a long time. I think I'd even take the over on that year plus away. And the Tesla comparison is a fun one, actually. And to me, the biggest difference, and we've never talked about this before, actually, is that Tesla never lost Elon, but WeWork did lose Adam. And so, I mean, is Adam as important to WeWork, do you think, as Elon is to Tesla? I don't think so. I think that Elon is, he's been around longer. I think he has more pull within whether it's the tech industry or with investors. And so Adam's done a great job, but he is not Elon Musk. And I think that if you look at kind of the intersection of what's going on between real estate and technology and where we work fits into that, that almost wants some visionary, but also you need some disciplinary people around that, people who understand the real estate world. I think that the automotive industry is a little bit different in that it's such a crazy transition that's going on there, whether it's electrification or to autonomy, both of those require Elon Musk type of personalities to continue to get the job done. And so I think WeWork can survive without Adam. I agree. And I think it's easy to also look at WeWork kind of in hindsight and point out all of the mistakes that were made on the investment side and maybe even some on the operational side, certainly a lot on the governance side. What do you think are the most important lessons that we learned from everything that's going on with WeWork? The biggest lesson was the tech investors, the tech investment banks, the tech venture capitalists didn't consult the real estate people. And I think that collision is what ultimately led to the revaluation of WeWork. The governance piece was air cover for, I think, what is this underlying mispricing between a tech company and a real estate company. And so I think the lesson that we learned is that having tech involved changes the growth profile of companies and should be valued at higher than whatever traditional industry that they're impacting. But it doesn't mean that there is an open-ended valuation. We just can't take that to an extreme. And I think that some of the later rounds were more at an extreme level in the case of WeWork. The other thing I've been thinking a lot with WeWork is I remember covering the big internet stocks when we were on the sell side. People used to talk some about quality of earnings and pulling out one-time things and how to really assess the earnings that the core business generated for these companies. And I actually think for venture, it's actually more about the quality of growth. You know, when you think about WeWork and from their S1, we see these gross margins of sub 20%. I mean, they're brutal gross margins. To even think that you could grow into something where maybe you get into the, the mid 30s, it's hard to build a business that way. And I think people maybe have the same skepticism as they look at a company like Uber or Lyft, where you got gross margins maybe in the mid-40s up to 50. And it doesn't compare to companies like Google and Facebook that have extremely high gross margins, Slack with 80% gross margins. Pinterest, I think, is another one that's actually performed relatively well compared to the rest of the group, also with higher gross margins. So I think this idea of the quality we'll think more about as venture investors, 
you know, venture will always be growth at most costs, but it has to be growth at good quality too. Yeah, I I would agree. I would add that definitely a learning from this is this shift. And we kind of saw some of the writing with Lyft and Uber and this shift and how public investors are viewing these companies that have heavy investment cycles. And that's in some ways overstating the obvious. Then the question is, what do you do with that ultimately? And I think that that is up to the public investor and they're free to change their mind on this. But I think that there is a piece of uh, maybe a better job of checking in as these later rounds are coming together, as the valuations are starting to step up. I think that venture capitalists can do a better job of having a pulse on where the next buyer is. And in this case, in Uber and Lyft, there was just a total disconnect. Yeah. Speaking of that pulse, I know one thing that a lot of people are saying relative to WeWork, but also with the, I guess you could call them disappointing so far, IPOs for Lyft and Uber, just given the way the stocks have performed. Slack is also, I think, below the initial price from their direct listing. But I know there's sort of this question now about the appetite in the public markets for IPOs and is the window shut? What's your take on that? Do you think the window is shut now with this or is it still open? I think it's still open. I'm just a firm believer that if you just still look at the growth piece and there has to be some sort of parameters, some rails around legitimate track to profitability. But I think as long as companies can express that, and when I say legitimate, I think probably two years or less to profitability, I think that that is still very open. I think that the risk of missing out for public investors ultimately is going to be so great that that window will be open. I know we always used to say that the window is always open for great companies. And I know companies like Airbnb, we'll talk about them in a minute, but it's exciting. And I think sometimes those great companies can spark something new when they do come out and perform well. And, and hopefully, whether it's Airbnb or someone else, we have one of those stories to tell soon. And speaking of great companies, before we talk about Airbnb, let's talk about another company that just raised earlier this week, Canva. They raised $85 million at a $3.2 billion valuation. So they were already a unicorn and have stepped up that status, I guess, a little bit. Mary Meeker was involved in the most recent rounds. That's a pretty strong stamp of approval. You know, one thing that we saw with Canva and Airbnb, there's some news about this as well. Canva actually showed some numbers a couple of years ago that they were profitable, operating profitable small revenue base at the time, but this was in early 2018, so not that long ago. Do you think that storaging is important now for companies going public to tell that they can show this profitability in the past? Yeah, I think you can get to public if you've got a convincing, well-thought-out plan to get there in the next two years. But if you're going as you're profitable today, I think that that is just even more of a indication that it'll be successful. And I think that companies that are growing, that are profitable, are going to have no problem going public. And I suspect that just to continue on that thought is that next year, there'll probably be less tech IPOs just given the number that we've had in 2019. But I think that that pace will still be robust. And I think that it will be led by companies that are profitable. I think that it's just being a sell-side analyst for a long time, there's this hearing uh, the public investors talk about the visibility piece. And that obviously has been 
increased more recently. And what that basically means is investors want to pay up. They'd rather, in a lot of ways, buy a company that's growing at 15% that has some predictability on the top and bottom line versus a company, obviously, that's growing at 80% that has unpredictability. So those companies that tell that first part of that story, I think, will be most successful when they come to the public markets. It's a great point in the sense that we've seen companies, even like a New York Times more recently, have a drastic change in their multiple because they're telling that story that you just talked about, Gene, this sort of predictability moving to this digital subscription model, the model that we see for a lot of SaaS companies like a Canva. And there's been a bunch of these types of companies that have raised recently. Monday.com, I know, raised fairly recently, I think at like a 1.9 or maybe close to $2 billion valuation. Grammarly, another software company with relatively predictable revenue. Do you think that with the sort of difficulties for a company like WeWork, which you might actually argue has a predictable revenue stream when you sign as a tenant, but companies like WeWork or maybe Uber and Lyft who don't have as predictable revenue, is there going to be a flight for late stage investors and public investors to these predictable models away from the sort of having to earn every sale model? I think that the dream big disrupt those businesses, there is still a place in the public markets for them. It is more difficult today than it was six months ago. That path is more difficult today. You know, if you think about just going one layer deeper in terms of WeWork, there is also this dynamic that they've been the exciting place to work and they have new office spaces, but they're clients are typically one to five people and they can move to other spaces more quickly. And so there is a little bit of a hit-driven aspect to their business, which can create some lumpiness longer term. The reason why I mentioned that dynamic to it is the ability to really tie people in. That's always been a powerful hook for investors to win customers in a land grab and then be able to keep them. And so I think you're going to see more emphasis on that aspect of customer retention. Peloton is one that I have some reservations about the hit-driven nature of fitness. I think back to Bullflex dating myself, but how a big of a trend that was. But their retention is incredible. I mean, in the case of Peloton, they're not really a fitness company or a content company. I think that they're more of a drug dealer with endorphins. Their retention rates are about 10x better. And I think those typical subscription-based models, 10x less kind of a churn. So I think investors will ultimately gravitate to those type of models. I think we have the title of our podcast, which is Peloton is a drug dealer. <laughs> right, <laughs> <on>. <laughs> right there. <laughs> Get into the kind of Zuckerberg discussion. We'll avoid that. So in terms of lock-in, it's actually something I think is super relevant for Airbnb and the news that they came out with just yesterday, I think, or the information it published, that they generated over $800 million in revenue in Q1, ended up losing, I think, around 300 million, but did show profitability the two years prior. And I mean, I think that's a company that has great lock-in because of the marketplace. You really can't find the inventory as a traveler anywhere but Airbnb. So they've got good lock-in. Yeah, it's, it's staggering. Yeah. I mean, the inventory 
they've got the number of listings. Of, they're in 191 countries. There's 195 countries in the world. They're in virtually every country of the world. Know that. You know, if you look at WeWork is in 32 countries, I believe. And it, it is a powerful top of the funnel that Airbnb has. And they do have this lock-in piece. And yes, they're losing a lot of money. They're spending a, a lot of that on sales and marketing. Call it 30% on sales and marketing. It's funny, we know Apple and Apple spends about 5 or 6% on sales and marketing. Different models, but different growth stages. You know, they'll spend probably $1.3 billion on a $4 billion revenue in the next 12 months, Airbnb will on sales and marketing. But I do feel like Airbnb fits into that camp where it is an asset light model. Yes, they are losing a lot of money, but customers are locked in. And I think that they will be able to tell a compelling story around their tracked profitability that investors will embrace. And I think that will ultimately lead to a successful IPO. And I would define that as a Evaluation is higher than their last private round, and we'll probably hear more about that early next year when they actually file. Absolutely. I was looking at the numbers a little bit. I mean, I think based on public statements, they did somewhere around $3.7 billion in 2018. I think they'll do maybe five-ish this year and probably six and a half or a little more next year. You know, talk about valuation. If you just put a Priceline multiple on that 2020 revenue number, $6.6 billion, Priceline's multiple that year is 5.5. You're at a $36 billion valuation. And I think their last round was around 38. And I would be shocked if Airbnb didn't have a higher multiple than Priceline. So I think they're in a good position, to your point, to show a valuation in the public market that is probably higher than their last private valuation. Makes sense. What do you think of this report, though, showing that they had been profitable for 2017, 2018, and then Q1, this heavy marketing spend. You know, we used to see companies do this all the time where you, you kind of take down margins heading into your IPO and try to amp up your growth a little bit. And then when you go public, you kind of, not that you necessarily turn it off, but you sort of ease out of your marketing phase and into a more stable growth phase. But do you think that is a good strategy given the environment for Airbnb or does it just not matter because of the quality of the company? I think it's the right strategy. I think it's a quality company. It's the right strategy because less people are looking when you're private. You just have less information out there. And so, you know, that was just a textbook model for creating value as a public company, going from a private to a public company. And it's something that we often recommended to private companies is just do as much investing as possible in the couple of years, a year before you go public. It's not particularly advanced, that thinking, in the sense that a lot of people could come up with that idea, but it works. And public investors particularly love to be able to rely on some numbers and especially love it when you start beating numbers. And so when I saw that related to Airbnb and kind of that they had drifted back, my reaction was smart move. I get it. And I think that they will be rewarded for that. The best companies understand that the success is not on the IPO, a cold IPO, but ultimately, you know, coming out with a cold IPO could be impacted by lower margins initially or maybe slightly lower revenue growth. But ultimately, a hot stock as a public company down the road is when you just start beating those numbers and show a trajectory higher. And I think that is intoxicating for public investors. And it looks like Airbnb is going down that road. I always thought that 
of all the companies that we covered in the past, Facebook was one of the best at doing what you said, sort of managing expectations, not that they gave guidance, but they always hinted, but managing expectations, putting themselves in a good position to beat numbers, but also being very open about their long-term strategy. I know a lot of their earnings calls, they would start and they would kind of give, I think it was a one, a three and a 10-year picture, or maybe it was a, a one and a five and a 10-year picture. That's the best playbook is every buy side investor wants you to beat your quarterly numbers because it makes their lives easier. But from a company perspective, you want to beat your quarterly numbers building into your long-term strategy, right? So combining those two things, I think, is what Facebook has done really well as a public company. I think that's why the stock has performed in part so well, like just delivering is, is really the reason. I think they, in a lot of ways, have the best playbook for doing that. It's a art that we haven't seen as much lately. If I was part of the planning of a public company, that's exactly how I do every call is I would lead it with, here's our one year, here's our five year, and here's our 10 year roadmap. And just reiterating and educating, using your earnings calls to educate investors about that one, five and 10 year vision. And uh, it's obviously the most important piece. I'm surprised we don't see more of it. And you're absolutely correct. It's not just about beating the numbers. Apple for many years was the company that would beat numbers. The sandbagging got so comical, you could basically predict what the actual numbers were based on what a typical beat was. But one thing that Apple did not do a good job of is really laying the groundwork for their one, five, and 10-year plan. They always fell back on they're going to make incredible products that people love and the plan will take care of itself. And I think that you know, if you look at a company like Apple that I think has a subpar market multiple, if they would just simply talk about the one, five, and 10-year plan, I believe that they would be rewarded with a higher multiple. Taking it back to Airbnb, do you think they do a direct listing? I hope so. You know, they've got, I think, still around like $3 billion in cash. They won't have any problem raising more money before they go public. But ultimately, I think that there's something there around direct listings. I recognize that it's the talk of the Valley right now. Everyone's talking about direct listings. We've only had a couple of them. But I hope that they do. And it would be nice to see one that goes a little bit further along. And I think the part that would make me most confident if somehow they could sell primary shares on a direct listing. And that's something that you can't do obviously today. But answer your question is, I think that they should go the direct listings up because they've got the money. They don't need to at this point sell primary shares. I love it. Yeah, that's something we will definitely be exploring more on this podcast. So maybe that's a good place to leave it. Just to say that direct listings are absolutely a part of the future. There's a lot of innovation to your point that needs to happen there, including maybe the ability to do primary. And that is what our podcast is all about. And we'll talk more about it on the next episode of the Loop Ventures Liquidity Podcast. Thanks, Gene. Thank you. 